Well, as we get into our passages this morning, let me remind you of the, the season that we've been in, the kind of rhythm that we've been working with the last few months, you know, beginning with Ash Wednesday and then up through the end of Holy Week, we participated in this time called Lent that we, we labeled it around here a joyous time of examine is the, kind of the old Latin word or examination. And it's joyous in the sense that it's like somebody who wants to learn to paint and, and finally masters a brushstroke and goes, this is amazing. Look, I can bring to canvas what I'm seeing in my mind because of these practices of examining what I'm doing and how it's actually working out in my life. And then we went from uh, there to, of course, Easter, and now in these seven weeks, we're celebrating Easter, what the church called Eastertide, and, and the way we've been working with this is Jesus is alive, and how is it that He's actually alive in our lives, and where are we seeing Him actually working in our lives? And then in a couple of weeks, we'll be at Pentecost, where we uh, recognize, and um, not just recognize historically, but ask upon ourselves uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then we enter into a big period of what's called in the church calendar, ordinary time. And it's in that time that we try to pull all this together. How is it that the formational stuff we are working with in Lent and the celebration of Jesus's life, uh, celebrating that Jesus is alive in our lives and then uh, being the people of the Spirit, how it is that we work that out in our ordinary life, in our ordinary times. So what we're going to do this morning with our readings, it's a little different than I might normally do. Uh, it's going to be a, a bit of a list, you might say, of how these four passages alert us to God's sightings within our own life. In the first one, in our first reading from the book of Acts, we see that the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out, and then there's this very uh, important word, you might want to circle it in your bulletin there, that the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out even on the Gentiles. Uh, that's the ancient word for whatever. Like, how does that happen? That the Spirit is poured out on even the Gentiles. Or as Eugene Peterson gets it in the message, even on the outsider non-Jews. Well, the reason this is a really big deal is that Jesus had said to his disciples that here's the way this gospel message is going to work. You've been, you've been hearing what I say, and you've been seeing what I do, and, and my, my words and my works are an expression of my Father and His kingdom. And that's going to expand outside of the area that you've been seeing at work. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this happens through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's who animates and energizes and causes this spread of the gospel to actually happen. And so in Acts 2, we see that the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is poured out on the Jews. In Acts 8, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Samaritans, and the gospel begins to expand even more. In Acts 10, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles again. Now, the focus of the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, the focus of the New Testament is on the gift, singular, of the Holy Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. See, when we, if we just play word association for most of us, if we, if we say Holy Spirit, most of us either tend to think in Pentecostal or charismatic or maybe non-charismatic categories, right? That's just kind of where our brains naturally and easily go. And when we think of, of course, Pentecostal and charismatic and non-charismatic, we tend to think in terms of gifts, like some of those speak in tongues and some definitely don't. 
But that is not the focus of the, of the New Testament. The focus of the New Testament is on the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit, singular. Because it's the outpouring of the Spirit that is, in a sense, the assurity that you're, you're Christ, you're God's people. Remember, Jesus said, Luke 24, 49, to the disciples, wait in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father has come. So the outpouring of the Spirit is the giving of the promise of the Father. And the reason this is so important is not just that the the outpouring of the gift of the Spirit is less controversial than some of these other categories, but it's way more holistic. The gift of the Spirit includes authority. What if you suddenly had this charming little vision to do some good in the world? Where are you going to get the authorization to do that? Well, with the gift of the Spirit comes the authority of God himself. With the gift of the Spirit comes power. Where are you going to get the capacity to do the good you want to do in the world? That's all the Greek idea for power, dunamis means. It means capacity. It means strength. Well, if you want to do good in the world, where are you going to get the capacity? Well, you get it from the gift of the Holy Spirit. As soon as you start trying to do some good in the world, you're going to figure out that you don't know everything you need to know. might be nice to have a little word of knowledge, one of the gifts of the Spirit. Are you tracking with me here? When you think of the gift of the Spirit, it brings all this into play, authority, power, the various ways the Spirit expresses himself in the church, gifts. Do you know what the uh, Greek term for gifts is? It's charismata. Charis there means grace. Mata, attached to grace like that, can mean something like a little portion of. The gifts of the Spirit are nothing to be afraid of. They're little portions of God's grace given to you to carry out the good that he's raised you up to do in the world. And so, see, the gift of the Spirit brings all that into play and one more. It brings into play Galatians 5, the transformation of our character called the fruit of the Spirit. So this is why when we think of the Holy Spirit as we start getting near Pentecost, we cannot think in, in typically Pentecostal or charismatic or, or dispensationalist, non-charismatic terms. Those categories are not helpful. I know they exist, I know they're popular, but bottom line, they're not helpful, and they're not the focus of the New Testament. The focus of the New Testament is on the reception of a person, the third person of the Trinity, not a controversy. Not a various way for people to form denominations. It's the reception of the people of God by the third person of the Holy Trinity. And then when that person comes in a congregation or on an individual life, then it brings into play all that we need to be the people of God. Think Ephesians, who, who um, Paul says that you're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works and that this was ordained even before the foundation of the world. Well, you can't get it out that you can't get about doing that without authority, power, gifts, and the transformation of our character that we would even love enough to care about it. And this is what our reading this morning says we get in the reception of the Holy Spirit. So here's a great God sighting. Whenever you feel any of that happening in your life, if you start feeling calling or vision or power or authority or a little gift of the Spirit moving in you, you got a great God sighting. Well, secondly, the psalm invites us to think about a response that happens within us, a kind of God sighting where we feel awe. If you want to look at your psalm there, we feel awe 
about the things, I mean, historically here the psalmist is talking about the awe-inspiring things that God has done to deliver Israel. But what the people saw Jesus doing, of course, stands in you know, exact continuity with this. And so what the people saw in Jesus in the Spirit was the same sort of thing. It was awe-inspiring. You know the song we sing at Christmas, Joy to the World? Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. You know, rocks, hills, rocks, hills, plains, mountains, call out the joy of God. Isaac Watts wrote that song based on this psalm. That, that this, is, this is a great God sighting that we recognize with the, uh, the message has that is, God is rolling up his sleeves to set the entire earth right. He'll straighten out the whole world. He'll put the world right and everyone in it. Hunger, starvation, no clean water, abusive, tyrannical leaders, oppressing peoples. At some point, God is going to set all this right. He's rolling up his sleeves to do it. And this is what gives, you know, Isaac Watts and the psalmist and, and the church a kind of God sighting that, that happens when we realize the response that we have within us when we feel a kind of awe. But there's another important thing, I think, here that this psalm invites us to look at, and that's this, <clears throat> that the core gospel question is not, do you know where you would go if you died, as important as that is. It's not the core gospel question. The core gospel question, according to what God's been up to in his people ancient and today, is something more like this. Take notice of the crooked, malformed parts of life and of your life. And then ask yourself, do you want to cooperate with God in straightening them out, straightening them out as a part of his world? Because that's what he's up to. He's rolling up his sleeves to set the entire earth right. That means my broken sexuality. That means my broken greed, my broken covetousness. It means people who don't have clean water. It means everything. God is rolling up his sleeve to put the earth right. That's what he's doing. So then the core gospel question becomes, when I notice the malformed parts of the earth, the earth including my flesh then am I cooperating with him to straighten them out? And of course, God's remedy for this is Jesus Christ. And so then a core gospel question becomes, are you interested in becoming a follower of Jesus? Are you interested in pursuing transformation into his likeness, joyfully becoming his apprentice for the sake of others so that you can be an ambassador of that God who's rolling up his sleeves? So that we, we start rolling up our sleeves to deal with the things that he's dealing with. Well, our third reading this morning in John gives us another kind of God siding within that calls us uh, attention to our, those times and places where we can tell that we generally are having faith and that we genuinely are having belief within us. And of course, Paul tells us in Ephesians that whenever we sense that faith, whenever we sense that belief, that this is a gift or a work of God. But here John says, the proof that we love God comes when we keep his commandments, and they are not at all troublesome or burdensome. Really? Is that the way you experience this? That, ah, this is no bother. This is not burdensome. You know, this is nothing. No, actually, I know that what happens is 
people experience this, the first little sense we get of this being troublesome or bothersome, we bail. And unfortunately, for wide swaths of the church, we bail with theological cover. We bail in these sort of often hyper-reformed ways that say, there's nothing for us to do here. I shouldn't really be trying to do anything because as soon as I try to do anything or cooperate with what God's doing, it feels to me troublesome or burdensome. Sort of like somebody making you dance when you hate to dance. I heard the other day, like, you know, the sexiest man alive, Johnny Depp, cop to saying he doesn't like to dance. Boy, did I feel cover. Woo! You know, if the sexiest man alive doesn't like to dance, that gives me serious cover, right? So, you know, like, if you hate to dance and somebody's trying to make you dance, well, of course it feels bothersome. Or if you think golf's the losing is stupidest sport in the world and somebody tries to make you go hit balls, of course you're going to re- uh, react badly to it. But what if you loved what was up? And what if, again, going back to that painter, what if you loved it when someone could show you, no, here's actually the proper way to make this stroke? Well, see, now it's not troublesome. Now it's not burdensome, because this is what you want to do. And what Jesus is trying to say to them is, look, You heard me say over and over again, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. I want you to know when I was saying and doing that, that was not troublesome or bothersome. That, you know what that came out of? That came out of my baptism in the Jordan in which I heard my father say before I had ever done a thing, this is my son with whom I am well pleased and I deeply love him. So Jesus is saying, I'm operating under that. I love my father, my father loves me. What we're doing is not troublesome, it's not burdensome. And then he says to us, come follow me. And then he wants to say to us, it's possible for you to live the kind of life with me through the Holy Spirit that I lived with my father. It's possible that you can live a life of apprenticeship to Jesus in which it's actually not troublesome or burdensome. Doesn't mean it doesn't take effort. It doesn't mean that things don't occasionally go wrong or that we don't occasionally feel that kind of stuff. But in essence, essentially, It's not troublesome or burdensome to those who trust in and rely on and cling to me. Well, lastly, in our gospel reading, we get another sense of a God sighting that has to do with obeying and loving. And again, John is trying to give us a bit of an insight to what I was just describing, that those who actually choose to make Jesus their master and apprentice themselves to him, learning how to live their life as Jesus would live it if he were they, that what they experience in this obeying and loving is freedom and joy. And Jesus reminds them that the, the initiation for this was in him when he says, you did not choose me, I chose you. Now, this, I think, has a, a, a lot of good import in our world today because religion today has become something just like a restaurant menu. There is no sense of being chosen for something. We choose. On this very stage last semester, not this last one, maybe the one before, a young Buddhist girl sat here. I was sitting next to her, and uh, this room was packed full of students, and I said to this young Buddhist girl, uh, you chose Buddhists over Christianity, didn't you? And I wanted, this, I wanted the Christ, this room of Christian students to hear this. Yes, I, I actually made a conscious choice to pick Buddhism over Christianity. I said to her, can you tell us why? She said, yes. 
I wanted to choose the one religion in the world that had never started a war. I want to be a peaceful person, so I chose Buddhism. Well, see, as long as we're engaging with our culture on those terms, we're, we're a bit toast. But what if this changed to something way more relational and participatory in which a master is saying, come follow me. I, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And this, I think, can be a very great insight, not only to our own hearts when they're sometimes confused, but in terms of us having kind of faith conversations with others. So a major God-sighting within us is this realizing that, that uh, uh, God is working in us, calling us, and, and that ought to sort of alert us to God, give us sight to Him. And that this God-sighting then within us becomes something like us realizing that we're being invited to be the cooperative friends of Jesus. For a look at your gospel reading. This is stunning to anyone who would choose to take it serious. Now, this is one of those times where I feel like it ought to have the preface for those who have ears to hear. I'm no longer calling you servants. See, most rabbis, when they had a little posse of people following them, that little posse of people were called servants to the rabbi. That was the historic norm from which this text comes. But Jesus says, I'm no longer calling you servants because servants do not understand what their master is thinking and planning. Do you hear the relational dynamic in that? This is not about religion. This is not about human beings picking a religion. This is about people who have been called by God and they're called into this relational dynamic that transcends what servants have had. And so Jesus says, no, not servants. I've named you friends because I've let you in on everything I've heard from my Father. I'm letting you in on this. A major God sighting. And then Jesus says, and not only that, but I'm putting you in the world to bear fruit, fruit that will last. You see the connection? The Son is sent. He bears fruit. And, and, and the essence of the fruit he bears is the creation of a people, or sometimes, to be more specific, maybe the reconstituting of the people of God. And they then are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read this morning, to continue to bear this sort of fruit. Well, that's why we engage in this rhythm where we started this morning. I don't engage in this rhythm because I'm an Anglican. I'm not an Anglican who happens to be a Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be an Anglican. And I've been given these wonderful tools like a lectionary and a seasonal calendar, and so I can pick it up, and I can do ministry to myself with it, and I can do ministry among us with it. Because it reminds me that yeah, I have parts of my life that are out of alignment with this, and how can I learn to engage in Lent so that it's not troublesome or bothersome, but actually a joyous adventure of examine? And then, it's great because Jesus is alive, and he's fixing what's malformed in me, as I read this morning, and we can celebrate that in this seven weeks of Easter. And then we can all present ourselves before God in a couple weeks at Pentecost and say, fill us, Lord, with the Holy Spirit, because we get it. We get what you're up to now, and we, you are sending us into the world to bear fruit, and we got no capacity to bear fruit, no authority, no power, no gifts, no character transformation unless you send us the Holy Spirit. Well, what if we really pursued this? What would it look like? 
Well, one way to understand what Jesus is often doing in the New Testament is that he's just being a leader. I mean, I know he's divine and all that, but had you been experiencing him when you heard him say some of these things walking through, you know, a little narrow opening in a village somewhere, had you, had you come upon him and heard him saying these things, often what he was doing was simply leading. And one of the things any leader who's leading anything like a revolution like Jesus was leading, any, any leader like that has to, among the questions they have to answer, is one really fundamental one with reference to the people who are hearing them, and it's this. What will it be like if you actually come follow me? Here's Jesus' answer taken from the last couple verses of Matthew 11. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus said, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So maybe now as we come to the end of this sermon, maybe you just want to bow your heads for a moment of quiet and just think this thought with me. What if this really could mark our walk with Jesus? Through any circumstance, through any era of life, what if Jesus was actually right about this? When he said, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly.